Welcome to Cross Defense. It's great to have you with us today, and it's great to be here. I'm Pastor Evan Gigline. I am sitting in for Pastor Wolfmiller, who's out today. He will be back next week. But we have a Cross Defense Standard Show ready for you today. We're going to be talking a little bit later uh, with Pastor Mark Pearson about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you want to stay tuned for that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what is unique about Christianity. You know, you go to college and you take some of those classes uh, comparative religion classes they are, and they talk about, uh, you know, Islam, they talk about Christianity, they talk about Judaism, and all the other religions and cults that are out there. And oftentimes what those classes end up being are a bit of a melting pot of, of this is what all religions have in common. Now, every religion has certain things that are unique to its religion. There are things that you have in Christianity that you don't have in Islam, or things that are in Islam that are not in, in the others, for example. But one thing that we have in Christianity, many things that we have in Christianity, is, first of all, the comfort of the gospel. That the gospel is that we have salvation. We have the forgiveness of sins by God's doing unto us. And this, this is amazing. This is shocking. Because this is not found in any other religion. It's unique to Christianity. But beyond that, I mean, as if that wasn't enough. As if it wasn't enough that God does the work if God does the action unto us to give us forgiveness and gain for us salvation. Uh, if that wasn't enough, the Lord does more. He is one who delivers it to us. Now, that's that's not something you have in any other religion. That is unique to Christianity. In every other religion, you, there is some kind of afterlife that is promised. There is some kind of a, a, a reward that you can gain, you can earn, you can achieve, and just do X, Y, and Z. But Christianity says this is done for you, that God himself has sent his son to die on our, in our place, on the cross for us, that we would not suffer the punishment for our sin, but that Christ in our place suffers for us. And what's more is that this is not just a moment in history, though it is. It's not just a moment in history that happened 2,000 years ago, but this is a reality. This is a promise that is delivered to us in the here and now. And this is the driving point that is unique about Christianity, that Christianity has a God who delivers his promises to us in the here and the now, in our context, in physical ways. And this is amazing because God knows our weaknesses. God knows our shortfalls. Think back to the wilderness as those in Israel had just left slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. And they're, they're, they're wandering around. And in fact, they're, they're, they, I mean, this is, they, they just pass the, uh, the Red Sea and uh, a fence is built around Mount Sinai that, that Moses goes out, goes up to receive the Ten Commandments and the blueprints to the tabernacle and all of this. He's up there for, what, 40 days. And the people start to worry. I mean, forget that God had uh, manifested himself by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of cloud by night. And that was God's promise, that they could look at that pillar and know God is with us. 
that he has not left us. He has not just abandoned us out here into the wilderness by himself, but that pillar was the indication that we are, in fact, safe from Pharaoh, that we are being delivered from the bondage of slavery out of Egypt, and that pillar is an indication that God has not left us. But now when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel start to become a little afraid. And they start to wonder, well, has God left us here all alone? If we can't see Moses, maybe maybe we're on it all by ourselves, that God is not, in fact, with us. And this is this just amazes me from Exodus 32, so that Aaron takes all of the gold rings from the, the people of Israel, and he, he melts this and makes a golden calf. And listen what Exodus 32 says. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, listen to this. This is what the people of Israel said to this, this golden calf that Aaron just made. They say, this is, or, uh, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And that blows my mind. How can this molten calf be the God that saved us out of the land of Egypt because the molten calf just came into existence 10 minutes ago? That if we hadn't melted our golden rings, this calf would not exist. And yet they're saying that this golden calf is the God that rescued us from the land of Egypt. And then what's more, verse 5 of Exodus 32 says, Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So here is Aaron, not only built, carving this golden calf, but he's making an altar before it and saying, A feast shall be to the Lord. And where are they going to offer the sacrifices uh, during this feast? But the altar of the golden calf. Now, obviously, the, the people of Israel did not think that this golden calf had saved them. But what they were saying was that this golden calf was the representation of who God really is. They were thinking that this is our visual, that if you want to find God, you look for him in this golden calf. Forget the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. If you want to find God, you find him here in this golden calf. You see, we as people are always looking for God in the here, in the now, in the physical, that we need something to cling on to. But here's the thing. Are we going to cling on to what God has given to us to grasp onto, or will we make for ourselves our own golden image, our own golden calf? That God has not promised himself in our dreams, or he's not promised himself in the secrets of our heart, but yet we go looking for God in all those places. Rather than looking for God in his holy word, that we look for him in the coincidences and happenings of the circumstances around us. There's our golden calf. But God knows that this is our inclination, that God knows that we as human beings are not just spirits that can grasp onto the metaphysical realities. 
but that God brings what is spiritually true and he combines it with that which we can behold in the physical realm. And this is what's so amazing and unique about Christianity. Because God is accommodating our weaknesses, that he's delivering himself to us in a physical, material place. This happened also in the wilderness. You remember that ancient Israel was bitten by these poisonous snakes, and people were were dying because of these poisonous snakes. And so God made a provision, and he instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent. And he instructed Moses to lift up this bronze serpent. And whoever looks upon this bronze serpent would be healed of their snake bite. Now, what is fundamentally the difference between a golden calf and a bronze serpent? You know, between the two, I mean, gold being a more precious metal than bronze, between the two, we might favor the golden calf. Certainly more pleasing to look at, a golden calf over against a bronze serpent. Looking upon a serpent is nothing really worth looking at. Serpents aren't that beautiful of a creature. And yet God placed his promise not upon the golden calf. He placed his promise upon the bronze serpent. And anyone then who looked at this bronze serpent had healing from the Lord. That they were spared. Their lives were spared. And they did not suffer death at the bite of poisonous snakes. And in John chapter 3, this is the exact account that Jesus uses to teach us of himself. As Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. That God comes down to us that we would behold him. That we would see God and in him have salvation. That God does not just stand up in heaven and looking down at us in this physical world saying, boy, I sure hope they can get things figured out. I sure hope they find me. Because when God did that, he said, no one seeks after God. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. If God is to sit back on his hands waiting to see who will find him, he'll be waiting an eternity. But instead, God is proactive, and he does the work to bring to us salvation, and he brings us salvation in a physical way so that when we look upon the person of Jesus Christ, a real man born of a real woman, And yet what we see is not just a man, but God himself. That God puts himself into our physical world. And in this physical world, he offers us salvation. That how does God use this newly given human body, this flesh and blood that he gained by a birth of a real woman named Mary? He uses this flesh and blood. He uses this body as a sacrifice for sin. 
that Jesus would use his blood, not that it would pump life in his own veins, but he would use this blood to spill it as an atonement for sins, yours and mine. That God comes down to us and gives us eternal life. Now, today, where do we go find Jesus? There's uh, tours on a regular basis to the Holy Land, and you go on one of those tours, and they'll show you some fascinating sights. Maybe the birth of Jesus, the, uh, uh, where the place where the, the temple was laid. But the one, play, the one thing you will not find when you take a tour to Jerusalem is the person of Jesus Christ. He's not visibly there. And so what is our Lord, who is ascended at the right hand of the Father, and, and truly present everywhere, where has the Lord placed himself to be found? That just as God dealt with us in, the, in ancient Israel through physical, material means by placing his promises upon a bronze serpent, by placing his promises in the fire, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. Just as he has done that, he has also placed his promises among us. That if you want to find Jesus, he has placed himself among us in the gospel and namely his promise of forgiveness upon water. That how do I know that God is for me? How do I know that his forgiveness is mine because he baptizes us. He places his promise upon physical means. You see, God does not just stand up in heaven saying, all right, let's see if they can find where I am. It's like hide and go seek. No, he seeks us. And he does so in physical means. That the promise of the word be placed upon a physical material element that's poured upon one's head in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What's more is that he gives his own body to eat and his blood to drink. That again, as he attached his promises to real material things in the ancient world, so he promises his, himself to us in material things. In bread that doesn't look like, in, in, in his body that looks like mere bread. His blood that looks like but a cup of wine. And yet he gives this to us according to a promise that this is my body and this is my blood given for you for the forgiveness of sins. So when we partake of that gift, we aren't wondering, is God really for me? Does he really grant me the forgiveness of sins? Does he really give this all to me by grace? The supper that he grants us to eat and to drink is his seal, is his promise that, yes, his forgiveness is mine, and it's given to you for the sake of the real man Jesus, who is true God, crucified on the cross, risen on the third day, now gives himself to us in a physical, material way. He grants us then the forgiveness of sins in this Holy Supper. So you see what's unique about Christianity is 
It's a religion where God comes to us, and he comes to us not in a spiritual, metaphysical way. He brings these realities, these truths, these promises to us in a physical, real, this world kind of way. That by beholding the promises of God, we behold the very truth that God is for us. All right, we're going to be right back. We're, we're going to be talking with Pastor Mark Pearson after this break about the Dead Sea Scrolls. You want to stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Evan Gigline filling in for Pastor Brian Wolfner. He'll be back again uh, next week. But stay tuned for Mark Pearson about the Dead Sea Scrolls here on Cross Defense. This week on Issues Etc., we'll get a biography of Martin Luther from Dr. Paul Meyer. We'll look forward to Sunday morning talking with Dr. Carl Fakentra of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, about loving your enemies and judging others from Luke chapter 6. And we'll continue our series on the book of Proverbs with Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Hello, this is Dale Meyer, and I'm the host of Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work, an Intersection. It airs weekly on Thursday afternoons at 2 o'clock Central Time, right here on KFUO. Together, we'll discover how the Word of God applies to daily life as we go about our various vocations. Be sure to tune in each week for an interesting discussion taking place at the intersection of Word and Work. This week on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We'll talk about encouraging youth in singing and church music with Dr. Jerody Marsh from St. Paul's Lutheran High School. And we'll explore new and upcoming deaf ministry resources from Lutheran Friends of the Deaf with Heidi Sias. We'll give thanks to God for a remarkable professor who was key in the formation of many Lutheran church workers. We'll meet one of the writers featured at the Texas Lutheran Writers Roundup. And Chaplain Craig Mueller joins us with stories and resources for Armed Forces Sunday. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. In a day when numerous concerns about money and safety abound in this fallen world, there is still a beacon of hope in Christ Jesus spreading the gospel message of mercy. Worldwide, KFUO has been a good steward of donations, ensuring the safety of funds our listener-supported ministry receives. If you have questions about donating to keep this worldwide ministry healthy, send an email to gifts at kfuo.org. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Evan Gigline filling in for Pastor Wolfmuller. We'll be back next week. You know, oftentimes people say the Bible, I don't know, if it, if it can be trusted, it can be uh, that, that, that we have manuscripts that have been delivered to us through the ancient world. And, and really for a, maybe a long time, we, we thought that was the truth, but could we really verify it? Well, archaeological find... 50, 60 years ago, really validated the the value of transcription of the ancient world and helping us talk about that is Pastor Mark Pearson. He's pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Long Beach, California. Pastor Pearson, welcome to Cross Defense. Thank you, Evan. Good to meet you again on the phone. It's been a while, I think. I don't think I've talked to you on the phone for, I want to say, like five years. 
So yeah, thanks for well, me. the advent of text messaging has made talking a a, a, a no longer great necessity, I suppose. <laughs> Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were discovered, what, 50, 60 years ago or more? And uh, for those maybe who have a acquaintance with the term Dead Sea Scrolls but don't really know what they are, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, they're a discovery of scrolls at caves by the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea being um, to the east of Jerusalem on the northeast coast of the Dead Sea. There were a bunch of caves. And in those caves, uh, people had preserved scrolls. They put them in um, basically pots uh, in the time of Jesus. So these are, these are super old. And in 1947, there was a Bedouin shepherd, just some random uh, run-of-the-mill guy over there taking care of his flocks. Uh, he threw a rock into one of the caves, and he heard pots or pottery uh, shatter. And he was very intrigued by that. So he went into the caves, and lo and behold, he discovered what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, he, he didn't really know what to do with them. He sold them to someone in Bethlehem, if I recall. And then scholars got uh, wind of this, and they were astonished. The Dead Sea Scrolls, um, now they're, they're numbered into over 900 scrolls found in 11 caves. And they are generally considered to be the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century. So I know there's various ways that archaeologists will date things um, from antiquity. When were the Dead Sea Scrolls dated? Uh, the scrolls themselves, they're, they're dated from about the 3rd century B.C. to the 1st century A.D. Um, and the people there... Uh, and it's kind of still, it's a bit of a mystery of exactly who these people were. Um, but they, this, this group of people by the Dead Sea, they were there from about 150 B.C. to about 70 A.D. So the scrolls that they use, uh, some of them are older than the people there. Um, but this is, this is the time of Jesus. This is overlapping with uh, the first, early first century when Jesus and his followers were here. So this is a group of Jews, uh, a sectarian community that removed itself from Jerusalem on purpose. Uh, they lived over there, and they had uh, plenty and plenty of scriptures and other writings with them. And that is what has been preserved by a random finding in the desert. That's very often how archaeology works. So um, people talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls a lot. They're an interesting artifact of history. But what significance does it really bring to uh, Christianity or to the Christian in, in, as an individual? Um, that's a good question. And I think, you know, usually whenever people hear of the Dead Sea Scroll, it's kind of at the popular level. There's some sort of, like, intrigue or mystery about them. Um, there's, there's kind of, on the one hand, there's like an Indiana Jones aspect to it. And on the other hand, maybe there's like a Da Vinci Code aspect to it where, you know, you either get really excited and, and you kind of, like, learn the history of how they were found and, how they came to scholars' hands and what happened with them then. There's still, I think there's still a dispute over who actually owns the scrolls. Um, but usually it's brought up in some sort of a conspiratorial context. All these silly theories still persist to this day. Um, you'll, you'll, I mean, if you just go on YouTube or on Google, you'll see that there are, there are deep, dark secrets about the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Vatican doesn't want you to know about. Or, um, you know, there, there's something in there that's going to change what everyone thought they knew about Jesus. None of that is true. 
Um, scholars have, have looked at these at length. Um, there's nothing that's going to you know, shatter anyone's world. Obviously, everyone likes a good conspiracy theory. But I think for the average person who is both biblically illiterate and historically illiterate, it's very easy to, to buy into these things that uh, say, oh, this is going to embarrass the church or um, this is controversial and, and we have to uh, throw out what we thought we knew in the New Testament about Jesus because the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, disprove it or something like that. Um, but it's, it's much more simple than that, actually. I mean, simple in the sense that it just comes down to good scholarship. So, so what, what can we learn about uh, ancient texts in general and transcription uh, that we— what can we learn about that from the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, <laughs> that is a, uh, a rather large question. I, I would just say that for our sake as Christians, um, the, 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 I would say there are two primary, um, two main points of emphasis to say. First of all, um, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have uh, the oldest copies of the Old Testament on Earth. And Prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copy of the, the Old Testament that we had was from around the year 1000 A.D. 1000, so this would be the, uh, a medieval uh, text. Uh, it's usually called the Masoretic Text. And when the question is, how do we know that that version of the Old Testament matches what the ancient Jews had, the, the Old Testament, the Bible, as it were, that Jesus used? or quoted from. Um, well, we now know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we have uh, uh, compared, and it's, it's astonishing how accurately the text matches. I mean, it's not a letter-for-letter match uh, uh, across the board because there are various versions of the Old Testament found at uh, Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. But, for you know, when scholars sit down and they do their comparison and they say, what do we have here? Is it is the text? of the Bible that we have today, does it match the text from Jesus' day and referring to the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. Uh, it can be trusted. It is accurate. There's nothing in there that makes everyone stop and say, oh, my gosh, we've gotten it wrong after 2,000 years. So this really verifies uh, the Old Testament manuscripts coming down to us today. You read your, your English Bible today. Obviously, that's not the original. Um, how do we know that we have accurate copies? The Dead Sea Scrolls show us that we have accurate copies. Did um, did this present uh, any information to us concerning the canon, those books of the Bible that we have accepted as Old Testament books of the Bible? Yeah, so we have, there are over 900 at least, uh, maybe there's over 1,000 now, I don't know, but I think there's over 900 of these scrolls, because um, in a certain sense, that some things are still being discovered. Of the 900, uh, over 200 of those are of the Old Testament. And so you can see there, over 900 of 200 of the Old Testament. I mean, they're, they're reading lots of other stuff. But these texts, uh, the Old Testament texts, they have 38 of our 39 Old Testament books represented in the scrolls. So the only one that is not there is the book of Esther, which is kind of interesting because um, Esther was a questionable book uh, for a couple of reasons by some of the rabbis. But um, as far as how we, we number the books, you know, Genesis through Malachi, 38 of our 39 books are represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So quite clearly they understood these books to be 
Holy Scripture. Speaking of those conspiracy theories that you brought up earlier, I think that there's a lot surrounding the canon itself. You know, those who are influencing which books will be considered the Bible or not. And I don't know if, if that comes up with the Dead Sea Scrolls, that since there were other documents found, um, that a conspiracy theory comes along and says, see, uh, the, the church over time has been hiding certain documents that were considered scripture in times past. Um, is that is that our argument being made, and how would you respond to it? Um, the argument isn't really dependent on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some will point out, and this is true, that the... Uh, now, this is a sectarian community, right? So it's one witness of what some Jews thought in the time of Jesus, or roughly around that time. Um, so this group of people, they seem to hold these 38 books as Holy Scripture, um, but it also seems that they had some other books that they, they thought were Scripture also. Um, probably most notably would be like First Enoch. I think that's one that maybe people have heard of. And so sometimes they'll say, um, people will say, aha, see, so that's not in your Bible, but these people thought it was part of their Bible. Um, that's a hard argument to make, though. I mean, when I say First Enoch, First Enoch is kind of a composite, and the dating of First Enoch is really uh, tricky. But again, if you have if you have one more book thrown in like that, I mean, I encourage everyone to read First Enoch and see what you think. Um, it's not going to suddenly like change what we understand about uh, ancient Judaism or Christianity. In fact, it only enhances what we understand. So um, you would kind of say the same thing today, like Christians differ on which books belong in the canon, and they base their arguments on different things. But I think everyone seems to know that Protestants and Catholics don't have the same books in their Bible. Um, but it's, it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, uh, aside, from, <laughs> aside from certain doctrines that are found in those extra books, but I mean, as far as the basics of, you know, who is Jesus, uh, what did he do for us, and even in the Old Testament, you know, how, how did God make a covenant with these people, with Israel? Like, nothing is going to come up in any of these books that just makes us have to go back and rewrite history. What do we learn about Judaism at the time of Jesus in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Um, that is, a, that is it, aside from the historical question, um, this is more of, um, I, what I might say, a theological question. To me, this is actually the most important part of the discovery of the scrolls, is uh, we now have uh, a primary witness of Jews at the time of Jesus that validates or confirms that the New Testament is, in fact, thoroughly Jewish, which might seem odd to say, but um, aside from Luke, um, pretty much the New Testament is a collection of Jewish books because they believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Now, why this is important, I would say, is because in the 20th century, Certain scholars like Rudolf Bultmann or Wilhelm Bissett, um, they more or less said the way in which Christians developed their views on Jesus was because they took that human person, Jesus, and they blended his teachings with beliefs from paganism, meaning the miracles, the idea of an incarnation, the resurrection, that he's God come to earth as a man. All that stuff was borrowed from religions in the Mediterranean area, so Greco-Roman beliefs, mystery of religions, and so forth. Um, that view is now a minority view, but in the 20th century, that was the predominant view, that Jesus is basically a composite of the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, and some sort of uh, Jewish beliefs, and Greco-Roman or pagan beliefs. 
But when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and you compare how they talk with what you find in the New Testament, how Jesus talks, how his followers talk, how, how Paul talks, um, that helped very much to destroy this notion that the New Testament authors borrowed from paganism to get Christianity. Now, I mean, not, I mean, even a more extreme view would be those who say that uh, Jesus as a historical figure demon exists, which which uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and many other documents would um, be great proof against it. Are there any um, scholars who are actually taken seriously and who make the assertion that Jesus never existed as a historical figure? <laughs> um, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, so that, I just want to be clear. The Dead Sea Scrolls don't mention Jesus, um, and, and I don't think you were saying that, but they don't mention Jesus. They don't mention any figure in the New Testament. Um, the only uh, thing that people are kind of wondering about is, uh, John the Baptist, because John may have been associated with a group called the Essenes, and the Essenes may may be um, the uh, the sorts of people who are at Qumran and, and preserve these scrolls. But that's kind of a gray area. Um, as far as your question, there there are only two scholars that I am aware of, and I mean to be honest, I'd have to put scholars in quotes. Um, the only two people I know of who actually deny that Jesus ever existed, and these are scholars who have degrees in, rel- in a relevant field, Robert Price and Richard Carrier. Um, but it's, I mean, it's pretty easy to, to shoot down their arguments. Uh, I think they're, they're uh, frankly, they're desperate for attention. And um, if you apply their method for how they understand that, there was no Jesus, then you can't know anything about anyone in history. So it, it, I would view it as pretty shoddy scholarship. Um, basically, if you're going to say that there was no Jesus, uh, good luck to you. That, that's incredibly <laughs> difficult. But your point about the Dead Sea Scrolls was that there's a consistency about the Judaism that is pictured in these Dead Sea Scrolls and the ones that we get uh, at later times of the Gospel writers and whatnot. Now, it seemed like if these are fabrications and not knowing that these Dead Sea Scrolls existed, then there would be a great difference between these two pictures of Judaism, but the consistency is the point. Is that right? Yes, and, and you said it better than I did, so thank you for that. Um, again, this is just one witness of Judaism at the time of Jesus, but it is an incredibly important witness because it overlaps exactly with the time frame. Um, so they, they bring up things like, for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is something called dualism. There, there's a way to understand the universe. There are only two options, the way of light and the way of darkness, the way of good and the way of evil, the way of truth and the way of falsehood. There's no middle ground, and all people, including angels, are in one of two camps. Um, now, as a Christian, we say, well, yeah, of course, but this was also a, a firm belief with the uh, community at Qumran, and that has been, uh, so like, especially think of like the Gospel of John. <laughs> Gospel of John is pretty clear. You're either with Jesus or you're with the devil. No middle ground. And people have said, oh, well, it's dualism, so it's borrowed from paganism. Um, but no, actually, the Jewish community at Qumran believed the same thing. Excellent. Well, we're going to be talking more about the Dead Sea Scrolls right after this break. We're talking with Pastor Mark Pearson. I'm your host, Pastor Evan Gigline. I'm filling in for Pastor Wolfmiller today on Cross Offense, and we'll be talking more about the Dead Sea Scrolls right after this break on Cross Defense.
You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Oratio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. U.S. presidents from a range of religious backgrounds have frequently quoted the Bible in speeches, acknowledging the influence of the Bible in their lives. Our sixth president, John Quincy Adams, wrote a series of letters to his son on the Bible and its teachings, published in 1850. He said, I have myself made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year, to read five chapters every morning seems to me the most suitable manner of beginning the day. And he wrote that his son should learn their duties and obligations from the Bible, quoting Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. Engage with the Bible, this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. All right, we're back on Cross Offense. I'm Pastor Evan Gigline sitting in today for Pastor Brian Wolfman. He'll be back next week. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the late 1940s, and they have given us, as a bit of a time capsule, of what the texts look like in Judaism. And uh, it has been very instructive for us, even as Christians today. Helping us talk about that is Pastor Mark Pearson. He's pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Long Beach, California. And Pastor Pearson, tell us a little bit about St. Paul's Lutheran Church for those listening out there in California. (laughs) Thank you for a, a nice chance to plug my church. Uh, we have a wonderful little church. It is traditional. We have one service, 9.30 on Sundays. Um, we're a close-knit community, and um, we are uh, surrounded by very large, large megachurches, uh, whether uh, of our own, um, our own denomination or otherwise. But, um, you know, word and sacrament every Sunday, no matter what, uh, that's what we provide people. So if you're in the area and you're interested in uh, traditional, uh, historic, liturgical christianity check us out all right uh well we've been talking about the dead sea scrolls and uh we 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 talked about the significance i think from an apologetic standpoint that um seeing the verification of what has been presented to us in the ancient text from the new testament coincides with what was presented from the dead sea scrolls from uh before the life of christ does uh, do, do the Dead Sea Scrolls present to us anything instructive for theology or about Christ himself? Um, absolutely. Uh, so this is kind of a follow-up to your last question, I think, especially in terms of, like, Christology. So the, the Jews who were at this uh, uh, place at, uh, by the Dead Sea, 
the Jews there were incredibly interested in the Messiah uh, and, and the arrival of a Messiah, or actually possibly two Messiahs, um, and the, the end of the ages when the Messianic age would come. Um, I think uh, it's pretty, quite clear in the New Testament that the followers of Jesus are also quite interested in the Messiah and the Messianic age. Um, but in particular, you actually have, and you said apologetics, so if I could reverence a Jew that maybe a lot of people know today, there's a Jew named Ben Shapiro. Uh, he's pretty popular. He does a talk radio show. But he said something that I, I remember because I thought he's just flat out wrong, and the Dead Sea Scrolls show that he's wrong. Ben Shapiro says that uh, he doesn't believe in Jesus because there was no belief at the time that the Messiah would be divine or would be God. And this kind of goes back to also thinking that uh, beliefs about Jesus being uh, divine or God were borrowed from paganism. Well, actually, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have a couple of quotes. Um, we have one scroll that says the Messiah uh, is the Son of God or the Son of the Most High. We also have another quote in one of the scrolls that says, God begets the Messiah. So the, the notion that there is no belief at the time among any Jews that the Messiah would be divine or the Son of God or God himself, uh, that's just not true, and the Dead Sea Scrolls show it. So we get some confirmation, and you could say maybe it's an indirect confirmation because it, it doesn't mention Jesus, but we definitely have confirmation that a divine Messiah was expected by certain Jews at the time of Jesus. It seems like a, a funny argument to make anyway, because it would seem to admit the divinity of Jesus to say that he's excluded from the Messiah since, uh, well, we have no promise that the Messiah was divine anyway. Um, that that was sort of uh, the contentious point, though, for those living as contemporaries to Jesus as to what the Messiah was there to do. Um, many looking for a, a king, and Jesus did not come as their king. Um, so does... Do, do the Dead Sea Scrolls um, support that view of the Messiah, and then also the view of the of a, of a divine uh, one in human flesh? Um, the the idea of a Messiah, there, yeah, it is it is looking for the that is the the scrolls and the people who wrote them and studied them. I mean, they are definitely looking for a messianic figure who would be more like um, an earthly ruler. One um, one of the reasons the people separated themselves by the Dead Sea, is because they wanted to purify themselves because they thought everything, uh, essentially everything in Jerusalem was corrupt. The temple was corrupt, the priesthood was corrupt, and so they, they separated themselves to remain pure until the Messiah comes. And then when he comes, there's going to be a new Messianic age. And it's a, it's, I'm not entirely clear on if, if it's simply uh, let's march into Jerusalem and let's you know go, go to Rome and kill Caesar sort of thing, or if it's more of a... Um, you know, the eschaton has arrived sort of thing, uh, a heaven on earth, blissful sort of existence. Um, but certainly, uh, I don't think that there would be anything in the scroll that would take the same interpretation of a crucified or a sacrificed Messiah for the sins of the world. I think that is unique to, to Jesus and his followers. Is there anything that the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, affects as far as uh, theology that's uh, that's unique to Lutheran theology? Um, yes, yes, my fellow Lutheran pastor. Um, <laughs> in, in fact, um, probably one of the, the more controversial things about Lutheranism is the Article of Justification, uh, which I, I assume all the listeners know, that's saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, and not by works. Um, 
quite a while ago, there was what's called the new perspective on Paul. It's not really new anymore, but it's, it's basically saying that uh, Luther and uh, the Reformers, they had a particular understanding of Paul's doctrine of justification, and they were uh, misinformed or underinformed. And, in fact, Paul is not simply saying works have no part in salvation whatsoever. What Paul was doing was saying that um, there are certain boundary markers that the Jews had that don't apply to Gentiles. So Paul would be a, a, an apostle to the Gentiles, and his arguments about the law, the works of the law, that phrase, works of the law, appears, I think it's five times in Romans and Galatians, and Romans and Galatians are the, the primary epistles, not the only by any means, but the primary epistles where Paul lays out what we would call justification. Um, the idea is the works of the law are boundary markers such as circumcision or like dietary laws, um, what we might say eating kosher. Uh, these are things that Paul says the Gentiles don't have to do that. But your works, your behavior, uh, does matter for your salvation. So there is a phrase, works of the law, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so uh, scholars have run to that and tried to say, aha, this is, this is proof that Paul, in fact, was talking about these boundary markers, these ethnic boundary markers that separated Jews and Gentiles, not simply the entire Torah, the entire law of Moses. Um, but there's some problems with that, um, and I, I recommend all of your listeners check out the works of Andrew Doss on this. Doss wrote the uh, commentary on Galatians in the Concordia series. He's done some really important work on this. Um, but essentially, there's a phrase, works of the law, but if you read the context in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it actually refers to the works, the ethical behavior of Israel's kings, and it calls David a man of good deeds, but then it talks about his, uh, it, it implies, talks about his adult, uh, sorry, adultery and him murdering. And so works, then, isn't just circumcision, you know, don't eat pigs. This, this works in the context of the Dead Sea Scrolls is referring to ethical behavior in general. So actually, some scholars have said what the Dead Sea Scrolls say about works of the law, meaning essentially um, the Lutheran understanding of, of Paul is wrong because the Dead Sea Scrolls show that we've interpreted Paul wrong. Actually, actually, the exact opposite is true. Works of the law, that phrase in the Dead Sea Scrolls, show that we have interpreted Paul correctly, that he is in fact referring to the entire law. So when he says you're saved not by works, he doesn't mean you're saved not by these ethic, uh, ethnic boundary markers. He means you're not saved by any works of any kind. That was just a little convoluted. You get that, Evan? Yeah, that's very good. Uh, just out of curiosity, how pervasive has the new perspective on Paul been in scholarship today? Um, that's hard to say. Uh, I think it just kind of depends on uh, who you read. I mean, for example, there's N.T. Wright, who is um, incredibly popular among Protestants, and he essentially has his version of the new perspective on Paul, and he um, he's persuades a lot of people. Um, he, he, he says, of course, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, but then he, he really wants to bring works in, too. Um, and as Lutherans, we say, hold on there. <laughs> Is that really what's going on? But um, I would say that for a lot of Protestants who um, keep up with current scholarship, this is actually a, a pretty popular idea still. I mean, 
the new perspective on Paul really like came to be, so to speak, in the I would say in the 1970s. I mean, especially a guy named E.P. Sanders. Um, but it it kind of keeps rearing its head um, every every few years or every decade or so. I, I'd have to ask the the evangelicals um, what they think, but I think this is still an issue. Um, there's a great collection of essays um, edited by uh, one of our seminary profs, um, Dr. Gishin. Um, I believe it's just called The Law in the New Testament or something like that, or The, the Law in Holy Scripture, maybe, um, where it's, it's, uh, it was um, a symposium year at, at Fort Wayne Seminary where they talk about this issue. And I think it does a really good job of introducing the issue to the layman and also saying why uh, our understanding of Lutherans is legitimate, why we should not abandon it. You know, 1947 or so was not that long ago in the perspective of archaeology. Uh, are they continuing to find uh, discoveries today that would have implications on on textual criticism? Oh, yeah, they're always finding things. Um, in fact, I believe just a couple of years ago they found um, some more uh, pots uh, in the cave over there by the Dead Sea, but they were empty. So, I mean, just imagine if they were full, if they had more scrolls. Um, but yeah, there's always there are always things being discovered. So textual criticism, uh, that is the the art and science of copying manuscripts. How do we know that our manuscripts match the original manuscripts? Um, that is an ongoing thing. I mean, there's it's been said that there's really nothing left to do. In a sense, that's correct because we have a fixed text, a fixed biblical text. But every time there's a new discovery, we have to double check stuff. So. Um, you know, we find another letter, another copy of Paul's letters, or we find another copy of one of the Gospels, then we have to go back and say, okay, now what does this one tell us? So, um, and I really think that speaks to how Christianity is open to scientific and historical investigation. Like, we don't just close our eyes to these things. Like, we, we want to know. We want to know what are the facts, what are the facts in the field, so that we can check our manuscripts and check our beliefs. And as they find these manuscripts, are they, I mean... They're not finding any major differences, I assume, but they're not exact replicas of the text that we already have. How would you describe uh, more recent discoveries of text in, in, in comparison to what we already have? Um, can you say that question another way? I'm not sure what you're asking. Well, I'm just wondering, uh, how do they compare to the text that we have already uh, gathered and, and published? As they discover new ones, are they uh, very similar, exactly the same, or much different at all from... Uh, what we're finding versus what we already have. I see. Um, no, they're 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 essentially the same. I mean, you know, this is before there are Xerox machines or anything like that. So uh, obviously, you're going to have people make mistakes, or you might even have some scribes clarify things that they think they're doing everyone a favor by clarifying the text, and so they might alter a word or something like that. But we have so many copies of the New Testament manuscripts um, that it's really not difficult to figure out what the original text was. And uh, I believe, uh, like Daniel Wallace, he's one of the big names in textual criticism. I mean, it's really like less than 1% of the New Testament, all the entire New Testament, is questionable in terms of uh, which, which is the original wording, and that less than 1% affects nothing in terms of our doctrine. What, would you, what advice would you give to a, a college student who's taking a class in um, in some New Testament from a university, and, and their professor is saying, look, we really can't trust anything of the Bible because there's so many differences in manuscripts. What would you say to that college student? <laughs> I would say, um, 
if you actually have a professor who says that, he's not much of a, of a professor. Um, it, it's pretty clear that uh, in terms of the biblical manuscripts, especially the New Testament manuscripts, we are head and shoulders above uh, those who deal with manuscripts of any other kind in the ancient world. I mean, you just compare what are our manuscripts, what's the manuscript evidence for the New Testament documents versus, say, the manuscript evidence for uh, ancient historians, you know, like uh, Suetonius or Tacitus or Polybius. What, what's the New Testament manuscript in comparison with uh, the works of Aristotle or Plato that we have preserved? Um, if you're going to say that the New Testament is unreliable and on textual grounds, then you, have, you, you would have to throw out everything else in the ancient world. And no scholar is going to do that. No scholar is going to say, oh, yeah, we should just throw it all out. I mean, the example I sometimes give is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is one of the most uh, significant figures in history because of Hellenization and how he, you know, how he spreads Greek culture and so forth. Um, our best sources on Alexander the Great are well over 100 years, if not more, uh, after him. And um, they all come from... Uh, sources that were secondary, meaning their sources that were based on earlier sources. And yet, if you take a Western Civ class or something like that, you're going to have a section, if not an entire chapter, on the importance of Alexander the Great. Compare that to what we have about Jesus. We have four biographies written within 100 years, uh, possibly within 50 years of the person. Two of the people know the person, so Matthew and John, who the people know people who know the person, uh, Mark and Luke, and are copies of the, the Gospels. We have, on average, 500 copies, and uh, whether Mark, in whole or in part. I'm yeah. going to have to butt in here. I'm afraid we're all out of time. We've been talking <laughs> with Pastor Mark Pearson of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Long Beach, California. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Evan. And thank you for listening to this edition of Cross Defense. We, Pastor Wolf will be back with you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.